Chad, my voice is going to sound really weird this episode because I freaked out probably worse than I ever have on a JV kid yesterday in a practice with no pads. Are JV kids really worthy? <laughs> yes, they are. I'm joking. <laughs> They're worthy of getting ripped. I think you got to rip them early. Uh, I had a kid yesterday. We were running plays against barrels on you know, my offensive line as a right tackle on JV. And he just stood up and he walked off of the line after I had told them to go 100%. And, I mean, I think I've seen worse stuff than that. But I yelled so loud. I have, like, my throat has, like, ripped parts in it. I don't know how to describe it. Like, it's, <laughs> like I, had to, I had to gurgle Alka-Seltzer or whatever that stuff, the alcohol in my throat to try to heal it because that's how bad my throat hurts. Like, if coaches today were talking to me about, you screamed so loud. <laughs> What was it about yesterday? You just woke woke up feeling a type of way, or is just uh just tired of some of that junk going on, or what maybe, was it like specifically? It might be me becoming an old coach, where I'm like, I don't expect you. I expect you to do exactly what I say, which is good. I think you should be demanding, but it, it's infuriating that you can tell a human being to do something and they go the exact opposite way, like in no way, shape, or form. Was that playing hard? That was not like that was the worst effort I've ever seen. Was it? Oh. It was actually the worst effort you've ever seen. No, but it, it it's that, that's what I said. so like what did did he deserve your worst like yelling outburst you've ever had as a coach? Did he deserve? Did he in that moment deserve that? He deserved a nine. He. I mean, so, you, like, you, so you gave him, you turned it up to about a 12 on the oh, 10 yeah. scale. And he, it, but it he, felt, really, he probably only deserved a nine. Well, it, it felt good. It felt good to do. <laughs> I mean, I, I, he needed it, but it felt good to do. But I did go up to him afterwards and I was like, look, man, I, I, can't, I put my arm around him after practice. So, well, so does it, did his effort actually get better from the yelling? That's oh, gosh, the, yeah. Important. Well, there oh, you go. Yeah. Because, I mean, some kids go the other way now. You do that and they shut it down and, you know, it's going to be a whole thing. So that's yeah. good. Yeah, it means it's, it helped. I think I've learned a lot since I was a younger coach. And uh, speaking of younger coaches, Chad, Patrick Nix. Patrick Nix, who we brought on the podcast this week, was the youngest coach in college at the age of 25 when he got his first head job. And uh, that was at Henderson State. He went 3-19 and 19 in his first two years. Chad, would you still have been coaching after that, or would you have been done? Going, into, <laughs> going to be a lawyer. Golly, yeah, three and nineteen. I mean, that is what. Yeah, yeah. Moving into my first head coaching job. If I get fired from this one, I'm out. Well, after hearing him talk about it, he really did have a tough situation. So it really wasn't as bad as it sounds. But right. Coach Nix is—he's a great guy. He's a great coach. Uh, he was at Henderson State those two years as a head coach at the age of 25, a Division two school. After that, he went to Samford. Then he went to. George Tech started off as the running game coordinator, became the offensive coordinator there. That job launched him to Miami. He was at the U. He was the offensive coordinator there for two years under Randy Shannon. Uh, and now he's at Pinson Valley High School. He's a 6A head coach in Alabama, and he's won the last two state championships there with his son going to Auburn, uh, the number one dual threat quarterback in the country for his class. So it was a blast to have him on. He gave a lot of good insight. Chad, what's one of the things that he shared that was really interesting to you or uh, gave you some insight? I mean, he's got unbelievable stories, but I mean, I just think that his perspective about his early career, I mean, it didn't go nowhere near how he expected, you know, and he, you know, basically said that he wasn't ready, even though he thought he was, and that a lot of coaches go through that. Um, and so, yeah, and that's kind of weird because I'm kind of in that situation. Like, as, I was he like was, <laughs> as he was talking, I was like, I mean, and he didn't say it as a blanket statement. But I mean, and, and I've heard that before, you know, I heard that before I got the head coach's job and he's right. Like, you know, no, but I don't think any head coach is really ready for their um, first job until it actually happens. So, but I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with him. I just think you can be in fortunate situations. I think that maybe what he's saying is a, is an older coach could have taken that bad situation and still made something maybe better out of it, which is, could always be possible. But I just think his perspective on it is really great. He was able to take that and use it. And really, I mean, going from a failed head coach and your first big shot to ended up being an offense coordinator at Miami is a, a good deal. He has a really good perspective to me because he's such a strong Christian. And you could tell that from the way he talks about what's important to him. I mean, he wrote a book about it. Yeah. 
wrote a book about it. He's wearing an FCA shirt during the interview and yeah. just, a, just a strong believer. And he truly does care more about that than winning. And uh, I love hearing that perspective from him. I also thought the Calvin Johnson stories and Bill O'Brien stories were pretty cool. So uh, he was awesome to have on. Guys, hope you enjoy Coach Patrick Nix. Also, I think JV players are important. Coach Nix, we appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the Coach's Drive podcast and talk with us a little bit. It's an honor to have you. be with you. Yes, sir. Uh, Coach, I want to start it all. You have a really interesting story, a really cool story. You you got a job at Henderson State Division II school at 25 years old, a head coaching job. And I know that that didn't go the way you wanted it to go probably at the time and the way you foresaw it going. Um, I, you had two years there. I believe your record was about 3-19. and 19, Is that right? Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, <laughs> that's about right. Hey, you close to that, yeah. Your recent history is really good, so that's why we're going here first. Coach, what was that like to – what happened um, to cause that? You know, what made that go in the opposite direction of what you wanted to go, looking back on it? What were some of the well, issues? You know, my, my first job coming straight out of, out of playing, I went to Jacksonville State University uh, and was the running back coach immediately uh, my first two years, second two years quarterback coach. And um, we had some crazy stuff going on at Jacksonville State at the time, and and one of our coaches kind of talked me into sending my resume to Henderson State just to see what would happen. You know, football scoop was popular then, too. Um, you know, it just sort of just hit the scene, um, and everybody was finding out about jobs. So one of our guys, you know, talked me into doing it. So I sent my resume thinking there's no way I'll get the job. Uh, but it was neat to have to actually put it together. I thought it'd be a good experience, at least just put the resume together. Well, the next thing I know, I get a phone call from Henderson State, and they wanted to interview me. And uh, what had happened was I put Terry Bowden's name as a uh, one of my references because I obviously I played for Terry and um, so they called Terry. Terry talked them into interviewing me. I was the fifth guy to interview, uh, and so when I left, uh, left the interview, got my car, was actually driving to get on the interstate to drive back to the to to drive back. And the athletic director followed me on the interstate on the old route, stopped me, blinking his lights, going crazy, stops me. I turn around, we drive back up the old route um, and go back to the school. Uh, my wife hadn't even seen the place. I'd been, you know, I got married my, in 95. And so she hadn't even seen the place. And I called her from their phone and said, hey, we're about to go to Henderson State. And um, that's a great test of marriage, by the way, that when your wife follows you, that means you got the right one um, in this profession. And, and she did. She was right there with me. Um, you know, but yes, absolutely went in there thinking that, you know, hey, this is going to be great. Head coach, um, y'all thought that I had all the answers. Uh, my dad was a um, was a high school football coach and very successful. I'd been around him and thought, you know, I knew what was going on. I'd played at Auburn, been around Coach Dye and Coach Bowden and thought, you know, I, I knew a lot. You know, Jimbo Fisher was my uh, quarterback coach. Terry, uh, Tommy Bowden was offense coordinator. So I'd been around a lot of really good coaches and thought I had the answers and everything was going to be really good. Um, actually, you know, the, the, even crazier than that, um, our offensive coordinator was a guy by the name of Doug Meacham, who was the offensive coordinator at TCU for a little while, Houston, Kansas. Um, defensive coordinator was a guy by the name of Charles Kelly, who's been defense coordinator wow. at Florida State, Tennessee. He's currently DB coach at Alabama. So that was my staff. And um, so yeah. so I like to blame them. You know, they were the reason why we couldn't win. I just had a bad <laughs> staff. I mean, they just, they just you know, a poor, poor choice of, of hiring guys. Uh, but no, obviously I did not do very good because I had a very good staff and we still couldn't win. Uh, but truthfully, we were all very young um, and we walked into a situation um, when the school was hiring a 25 year old guy. I should have known that the situation was not real good walking in. Um, we literally walked in the first spring. Um, we had four offensive linemen. We had about 26 guys on the team. Um, Ooh, wow. So it was very difficult. Um we we had we couldn't even hardly practice. We had a GA that had to play scout team quarterback the first year because we only had one quarterback. Um, I mean it was it was a rough rough deal, um, you know. But I will say it really gave me a great appreciation for head for head coaches I worked for after that of all the things that you have to do from the you know in in, in college from the divvying out in Division Two the scholarship numbers and, and keeping the numbers right. I had no idea of that. I'd never been around that before in my life of, you know, dividing up scholarships and you only get 36. And at the school at the time, the um, NCAA allowed 36, but we only had like 24 that they gave us. So, you know, we're trying to stretch 24 into as many as we can and, you know, trying to piece this, that, this together, that together. And, uh, you know, so 
a lot of things that I had no idea about. But when I walked out of there, I had a much better appreciation, a much better understanding. Um, you know, like for me today, I, I understand how to run a budget because I had to run a very small budget and on a very tight budget. We had to spend a, spend a lot with very little. And, and so learned how to do it, you know, at a very early age um, of how to do those kind of things. And, and I think, you know, we did not do a very good, I shouldn't say, we did a very good job with what we had. I thought the winning, you know, wins and losses weren't as good as what we would like for them to do. Um, but I think now looking back, we absolutely left the place in a, in a better situation than we found it. And, and since it's been fun to, to keep, keep up with, with Henderson state a little bit, and they've had some success. They've done good. We had, you know, when I left, we had a brand new building design that I designed and we had raised the money for it. That they built, um, after I'd left, as soon as I left, they started building it. And, um, so I think we, we were able to do a lot of things, a lot of good things in that situation, um, and left the place better than what we found it. And, and when I left, I was a much better coach from sitting in that seat and seeing all the things that you have to do as a head coach. That that way, when I you know went to Sanford or Georgia Tech or Miami, wherever I was, when the head coach gave me a responsibility to do, I took a little bit more pride of getting it done to help him because I knew how hard, difficult being a head coach is. Yeah, I mean that twenty-five years old. You're only three years older than players in the locker room you you definitely had a young staff and I guess we had one player older than us uh, one player older than me he was an ex-military guy that we had brought in uh, wow. he was literally 27 years old uh, playing linebacker for us and so yeah so it was uh, it was interesting it was very uh, it was a lot of fun well you've won two state championships now coach you've been an offensive coordinator at Miami you've you've done a lot of things that a lot of coaches would love to do do you think if you hadn't gone through that experience at Henderson State would you be the coach? Do you think you would have taken the path that you've taken um, to get to where you're at now? Do you think you would have seen some of the successes or do you think that, I mean, did, did that make you a better coach going through that hard time? It absolutely made me a better coach. Now who knows what, you know, how God would orchestrated it from there. You know, um, it's all his plan anyway, but, right. uh, but there's no doubt he gave me that experience to make me a better person, a better husband, a better dad, a better coach. Um, all of it together. Uh, met some very good friends there. One of, a, a friend that I still have to this day. It's one of my best friends that I know I can trust. Um, coaching friends with those guys that when we were there um, and, and going through that, and we still, um, you know, we'll we'll still talk about it and I'll still talk to some of those other guys that were with us, the GAs and student assistants and some of them. That um, that you know, when you go through things like that, you become pretty close, and um, you know, and so. Still, it's it's amazing. I'm probably talked to that staff and those guys, and still those bonds with them as much as I do anybody, uh, just because of what we went through and how we were battling together to, to get through it. But I, you know, I think without a doubt, you know, going through that struggle and, and learning, you know, sort of on the run, on the fly, and learning the hard way a little bit, no doubt has made me a better coach um, in the long run. What's something, one thing, or maybe a few things that you did as a younger coach, I mean, as a different time that you would never do now looking back on it. You're like, why would I do that? You know, I don't, I don't know that I would say I would never do it. You know, I don't think that I did anything just so dumb that, you know, was careless <laughs> or anything like that. But the one right. thing I think that I've learned since then, I was a lot more concerned with wins and losses. I was a lot more concerned with success. I was a lot more concerned with that. Um, and I've learned as I've grown, that that that's so minute that that's so you know that really doesn't matter anymore it's so much more about the kids it's so much more about you know developing kids about you know discipling kids about watching them grow and and become better men it's so much more about that now than it was you know for me when I was 25 years old 25 years old you you walk in and yeah you you I knew I wanted to do that I don't think I knew how to do that at the time you know and I think that was the, the problem and and so now I truly understand how to love players a lot better. Um, I understand how to develop them as, as a whole person. Um, like I said, I think that that was our intention. I just, I think I was too young to really understand how to do it. I just didn't have the experience yet. Um, I'd seen some really good guys do it, the Tommy Bowdens and, and people like that. Um, but I just had not done it myself enough yet to really understand what it was truly, what it truly meant to love your players and, you know, and, and not worry about the success on the field. Um, and what I've learned in turn is success on the field comes by doing all those little things off the field, That's by right. loving your kids and all that. It, you know, it's not about X's and O's and, and those kind of things near as much as it is about, about loving the guys that you're around. How do you find the balance between saying, 
I want to, that's my goal. That's the ultimate goal. But at the same time, I know I've got to win. Do you, do you talk about going out there and winning? Is that a part of it? Or is it you focus so much on the person and making them better men that you just say, give it your best? Like, what is no, your... It's, a, it's definitely a balance. And I tell our guys all the time, the greatest competitor to ever live was Jesus Christ. Um, I mean, he competed so much that he died for a guy like me that he didn't even know. Um, we, don't understand, we don't understand how to compete like that. Um, we have a little finite view of what his infinite view of competition really is. So, you know, our, my thing is, if, if, if Jesus competed for me that much, then I ought to be competing with him, for him with everything I do, whether it's, you know, whether it is X's and O's, whether it is in the weight room, whether it is on the field, whatever it is, um, I need to be doing it the best I can. But it's got to fall under the umbrella of love, you know, that, that we're constantly loving our kids. And part of loving our players is holding them accountable, you know, making them be disciplined in the little things that they're doing, um, working their tails off making them strive to be the best they can be in everything they do. That's part of loving our kids. And when you're doing all those things, winning becomes just a part of it. Winning becomes not the part. It just becomes a part. And it's sort of a byproduct uh, of all the other things that you're doing uh, when you're trying to nurture and develop a kid, you know, but, but we spend as much time game planning and, and, and getting the weight, you know, organized for the weight room and our, our weight program and everything else we, we do as much of that as we do anything because we know that's part of loving the kid. Part of loving the kid is putting them in the best opportunity they can to be successful, but that's not going to measure their worth for us, if that makes sense. We're not yeah. measuring. Your worth is not measured by how many catches or how many tackles or how many wins or anything like that. No, that's not it. We have a lot of guys on our team that just really are not real good. I mean, they just unfortunately, they're not, but they're still great kids that we love to death. And they're, they're just as valuable to us as anybody else on the team, just as valuable as that guy that's going to go out there and catch 20 touchdown passes. You know, we still hold him the same accountability as that other kid. So I think you have to just, you know, make sure that, um, that yes, you want to compete, you want to win, you want to do all those things, but you got to understand it's all those other things that help you get there and help you win. Now, you've coached at the highest levels of college and high school. Do you get more gratification from developing kids in high school than, say, college, or is it just, you know, a different side of the same coin? Uh, I Total, it's, it's very different. I get so much more enjoyment um, and out of coaching high school than coaching college. College, I tell people all the time, college, um, I have much more relationship with coaches from college than players. You're just never around the players. The NCAA doesn't allow you to be around the players, um, you know. And so back in the day, I was around. You're around the coaches all day long. You're game planning. You're talking about recruiting. You're with them all the time. And then you'll see the player maybe, you know, off season, three hours a week maybe. And during the season, you know, they give you a 20 hour rule, but it's really you're seeing the player maybe 10 hours, you know, 15 during the week uh, that you're actually seeing him and. And that time that you're seeing him is all about football. You know, and that was the right. negative thing about, to me, that I, that I liked about college. But one thing I don't miss is every time I was around the players, the bulk of it was all about football because you didn't have time to do anything else. You had to get the game plan in. You had to go to practice. You had to do all those things in order to, to give them success and have a chance to win. And you didn't have a chance to really to spend time with them and eat with them. And, you know, now in high school, you walk right in there at the cafeteria and you sit down with them and you're eating with them. Um, you see them in the hallway in between classes. You're, you're seeing them all day long. You see them before school. You, see, you know, I mean, in, in college, you, you just it wasn't that kind of relationship. You were seeing the coaches in that, at that time instead of players. So I, I tell people all the time that high school is much more about the players. And I don't see the coaches a lot, you know, in high school because we're all so busy with our classes and morning duty and, and being a parent and everything else. It's almost opposite. When we see each other as, as coaches, it's all about football. You know, and then, but when we're seeing the players in high school, it's all about the player. It's about getting to know them and, and making sure that they're okay. And each one of them had, you know, what situation is at home and what's going on in class. And, you know, in college, you had, you know, you hired 20 other people to deal with the academics right. and this and that. That wasn't your job, you know, and, and you had to do your job and you tried to do some of that other stuff on the outside of it. You know, and it just, there wasn't a whole lot of time to do that, though, with the players. Coach, what did you, you went to college. You were coordinator at Georgia Tech in Miami. How did you get that coordinator job at Georgia Tech? What were you coaching at Sanford before you went to Georgia Tech? Were you receivers? Were you coordinating there? 
Uh, what was your I, job at Sanford before that? I left I left Henderson State and went to Sanford. And when I got to Sanford, I was the wide receiver coach. Um, and then about four games into the season, our head coach was let go. And um, offensive coordinator was pr- promoted to head coach. And I moved up to offensive coordinator and basically ran everything and called everything for the rest of the year um, after that. Um, and then once the season was over, um, Coach Gailey got the, the job there at Georgia Tech. Um, did not know Coach Gailey at all, but knew a, a guy, a coach by the name of Glenn Spencer. Um, Glenn, from once again, being at Henderson State, he was at West Georgia. He was head coach at West Georgia, so I'd gotten to know Glenn um, from there. Glenn was now the defensive line coach at Georgia Tech. Happened to see him in San Antonio at the convention. Um, got to talking, and uh, he said, hey, do you know Coach Gailey? I said, no, I really don't. He said, well, um, well you need to call uh, Billy O'Brien, send him your information. I'm going to talk to him. And, and you know, because Coach Gailey doesn't know a lot of, you know, college guys, and he's looking to hire a few more guys. And, um, you know, with your dad coaching in Georgia, being a high school coach in Georgia, he needs that kind of thing. So one thing led to another. I talked to Coach O'Brien. I talked to Coach Gailey and went over and met him. Next thing you know, he hires me, and I, I come in and um, coach the running backs my first year. Um, like I said, Billy O'Brien was offensive coordinator. Um, and then when, when Billy left and went to Maryland with Ralph uh, Freegen, then I moved to quarterbacks after that, and um, Coach Gailey was basically the, the coordinator from that point on. I was kind of the entitled, the passing game coordinator. I think I, actually I was running game coordinator at first. Uh, Buddy Geis was passing game coordinator. Um, and then after three years of that, my last year, Coach Gailey named me the offensive coordinator and gave me everything, called the plays, did it all. Um, and then after that, that one year, then I had the opportunity to go to Miami and be offensive coordinator there. So Bill O'Brien, that's a name everybody knows. A head coach in the NFL. He's been a coordinator for Tom Brady and the Patriots. Is there anything at that time that you would have said, this dude is going to be like a big time coach? Is there something that really sets him apart from other coaches? Or do you think it really just ends up being the people that you know and working hard and chips falling where they they need to for you to end up at an NFL level and having the kind of career Bill O'Brien's had? Well, you know, Billy, there's no doubt that you got to have, you got to know somebody and got to have the ball bounce your way a little bit. But one of the, if not the, one of the smartest guys I've ever been around. Uh, unbelievably smart. I mean, photographic memory type of smart. Uh, extremely detailed. Unbelievable. Now, Coach Gailey was extremely detailed too. Uh, and those are probably two of the most detailed guys I've ever been a part of. I mean, we didn't draw a card at Georgia Tech without knowing exactly um, what play it came from, what game it had to be on the card. When you drew the defense, it had to be this This blitz comes from this game, this situation, this play. And so, you know, Coach Gailey or Coach O'Billy, one, they would go and challenge you and say, okay, where did this come from? Well, it came from right here. You know, and so they were that detailed to, to know, okay, it's third down and four. We're going to run this. We're going to run this out of this formation. And, you know, I mean, it was just unbelievably detailed with how both of them were. But Billy just so smart. I mean, just unreal. He's an Ivy League guy anyway um, and just understood, played defense in college, really had a great understanding of defense, unbelievable understanding of offense. Uh, So, yes, there was no doubt. Uh, You know, when I first started talking to Billy, I thought he was this old guy because, you know, I'd never met him or anything. (laughs) Talking to him, I was thinking he was like this 50, 60-year-old guy because, I mean, he, was a, he was a, had some wisdom. He was a smart dude. I meet him for the first time, and he's like eight years older than me. You know, he's like 33, 34 years old, and here I'm about 26. I'm like, dude, you're, you're young as can be, you know. And, and you can just tell um, just really, really, really smart, um, very much attention to detail. Um, and so, yes, you could tell that there is no doubt good things are going to happen for him. And that's another incredible story of him going, him stepping down to go to Maryland stepping down to go to the NFL and rising back up by, you know, by going down to come back up, you know, and, and then unfortunately in our profession now, too many of our young guys, young coaches coming in, they want to go straight into being a coordinator, straight into being a head coach. They don't think that they have this or that to learn. Um, and going through it, being a young head coach, watching Billy O'Brien do it the way he did it. Um, you're not ready when you think you are, you know, there's still a lot of learning to do a lot to grow, um, and then once you've learned it, you've, you've grown there, then that's when you see yourself really having success like you expected to when you were 25 to 30 years old, you know, and you're just not quite ready for it. How'd y'all get Calvin Johnson to go to Georgia Tech? 
Like he's like the oh. best athlete in the country at the time. Yeah. <laughs> that was I had the fortune of recruiting Calvin. Um, and that was one of those to where um, you, know, you would be in the school and the, every t- every chance you had, NCAA-wise, every opportunity they had, you were in that school. You'd be there at the beginning of the day where everybody saw you walking into school. You'd come back at lunch when everybody was in the lunchroom, make sure everybody saw you. You'd be back in the afternoon, and you'd go hit other guys in between. Um, you right. know, He was just that kind of a guy that – and, you know, the students would think, ah, he's been here all day. But now you'd slip <laughs> away when they were at class to go down the road somewhere. But, yeah, that was the guy. Um, you know, but I remember Calvin, you know, they didn't throw the ball too much at, a, uh, at all. Got Coach Rodney Walker was his head coach and, uh, at Sandy Creek. And um, they didn't throw the ball much to Calvin at all uh, his junior <laughs> year. Uh, but I remember, yeah, I know what. I, what? He's not very smart. Sometimes I mean, coaches are not real smart, right? That's you insane. Know, um, but literally, Rodney, Coach Walker told me, he said, you know, Patrick, I'm telling you, this guy's really good. And I'm like, well, I got to have some Throw the ball. just walk into Coach Gailey and say, hey, this guy's good. His coach says he's good. We need to offer him. He looks pretty. He's 6'4", 205 pounds, 210 pounds. But I, I got to see him play a little bit. And they didn't have a highlight. There was no such thing as huddle, none of that kind of stuff. So I remember one day going in and taking all their games. They played 11 games. Um, got beat in the first round of the playoffs. I took every game, VHS tape, took my own blank copy and sat in there the whole day and, and made a highlight tape. And, um, you know, and when I was done, I went back and watched it. And I, every time that they threw the ball to him, every time that he actually played on, he played on the kickoff cover team and, and had a couple of really good tackles as a safety, um, had some returns, everything that he did, I went through everything, everything he did, we put on there really, honestly, less than 30 plays. Um, that, that he really got the ball thrown to him and all that, which is crazy, you know, that, that he's not being used more. But when you watch the plays, it was like, holy cow, this kid's incredible. And so um, actually did not quite finish the highlight tape. So I took all the tapes with me um, to go back to Georgia Tech and finish up. Um, and I just conveniently did not take those original copies back to them for a few weeks so they couldn't make a highlight tape off Calvin. So not everybody got to see him as early as we did, um, you know, which was probably not very nice of me to do. Um, you know, but, you know, it's recruiting and um, no, nothing illegal about it. Um, but I showed him to Coach Gailey. Coach Gailey was like, oh, this guy is great. So we offered him quick, offered him first. And in those days, you weren't offering kids as ninth and 10th graders, any of that kind of stuff. And, so we offered him right after his junior year. Um, and then, you know, his mom, very well educated um, in, in education. Dad worked for the railroad, great man, um, and just a really solid family. Older sister that was going, um, that was at, um, I forget, she was at one of the schools there in Atlanta at the time um, and was just very well educated family. And his mom wanted him to have that kind of education. And, um, and so we, he was also a big baseball player and thought he was going to play baseball. Um, and I remember one spring, Coach Gailey and I took the day, uh, went saw him at school, then went and watched him play baseball at Woodward Academy, um, and he couldn't hit the curveball. And Coach Gailey looked over at me and said, said this dude, he can hit a fastball a long way, can track anything down in the outfield, but he can't hit a curveball. And so you knew that his baseball career was not going to be real long because he could not hit the curveball. Um, you know, but our baseball coaches talked to him a little bit. He thought he might come in and play football, baseball, um, but it didn't take him long to realize I think it was his third or fourth game against Clemson. He caught three touchdown passes at their place for us to upset them. And um, the two corners were both first-round picks themselves. Just and he just made them look bad. And I think all of us realized, including Calvin, that, hey, dude, you're special right here. There's no sense in worrying about baseball. Just keep playing football. <laughs> hey, you're going to be just fine. Coach, um, let, me, let me ask you this. If he's on his recruiting visit with Bill O'Brien and Bill O'Brien's seen him play baseball, knows he can't hit the curve. Coach O'Brien, if y'all let me play baseball here, I'll come to Georgia Tech. What's O'Brien going to say? Oh, you can play baseball. You can play. Hey, son, I believe in you. You'll be the cleanup hitter. No doubt. You can play baseball. Coach Hall was there at the time, too. Danny Hall was the baseball coach. Coach Hall was with us. Hey, you can come out here and play baseball. He knew he's never going to get it because he knew how good he was. But, yeah, you can come out here. Because, truthfully, if he'd have really wanted to play baseball, Coach Gailey would have let him play baseball. But I think Calvin and all of us realized, don't waste your time, buddy. You know, you're – you're about to make yourself a lot of money in this game called football because there's nobody better than you in what you do. I wanted to ask you one more thing about Bill O'Brien. Was there anything 
that he like what was his pet peeve every coach has their thing that makes them freak out or gets them upset or they want to be exactly perfect was there anything around the office it doesn't even have to be football related like during the day you were like all right we don't need to let coach o'brien uh, see this or i don't want to mess this up for him was there anything that he would kind of freak out about you know there was a lot of things he couldn't stand um one of his pet peeves is he didn't like guys that, that went to, to ate lunch out of the office. He just couldn't understand that. Couldn't understand why you weren't in the office eating out of a, a styrofoam cup with a with a you know plastic spoon, um, watching video and getting things done. We don't have time to be eating or exercising or something like that. You know, I mean, he was um, Billy was as, as intense of a coach as you, as you will ever be around at that stage of his career. Um, now I'm sure he still he hasn't changed a lot. Haven't been around him in that capacity, you know, since 2000, you know, two I guess it was so a long time. Um, but he was a very intense individual um, and and very driven. Um, so he, I would say probably as much as anything, um, you better not be caught over in the cafeteria when he was needing to figure something out with a card or, you know, or, or practice script or wanted to talk to you about, you know, a drill that he wanted you to do or something like that. You better be around and be available or ready to go if he needed to talk to you. Um, you know, and from what I understand, I never was with Coach O'Leary, but from what I understand, Coach O'Leary wasn't much different, and Billy basically grew up under him, and that's where he learned a lot of it. So I think that it, it, he came by it pretty honest um, from what the, he had been with with the staff before. What was it like working for Randy Shannon at Miami? Like, how similar was he to that, or did he just have a – I mean, he seems like from the outside, I mean, I was, you know, still in high school then, but it seemed like he was a little bit more maybe hands-off, but was just a very poised, like, you know, we're going to be very disciplined, buttoned up, all of those kinds of things. Is that how it was? It's, it's pretty accurate. You know, um, <clears throat> Randy wasn't as detailed as the other guys that I'd been, been around. Um he was in a bad situation, to be honest with you. Coming in when he came into Miami, um, they were coming off some rough times and some um, some times when, you know, the um, I guess it was Pata that had just been murdered down there um, and, and, and some, some turmoil going on with the team with, you know, with some lack of discipline and things like that. And, and when Randy came in, um, he had to sort of go the other direction with it and really rule hard and really be tough on the guys and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so he had it was a it was a tough situation for him coming in. Really good guy to work for. Um, really smart football coach. Um, I think probably you know, and this is just my opinion. I think probably the hardest thing and the worst thing for Randy that, that got him was probably the outside, the Jimmy Johnsons and the Michael Irvins and and all those guys that 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 wanted to meddle and tell you what to do and tell you how to do it. Um, you know and 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 got in his ear with this, that, and the other instead of just letting Randy be Randy and just you know, just do what you do and, and believe in it. And because of that, we never really, you know, fell into to, to being who we were and, and being comfortable with who we were. Um, every time, you know, we were at that time, believe it or not, we were trying to do a lot of RPO stuff. We were trying to get into some of that. And that was at the, I'll never forget, we were at Duke the first time they ever brought the the smoke blitz sound mic off the edge. We were running zone. We pull it, throw a slant to the inside receiver for a big play, and everybody went crazy thinking, what in the world just happened? You know, because it was the first time, you know, everybody thrown some bubbles and stuff like that, but nobody had really thrown the ball down the field off of the run game. And we right. pulled it through a slant right in behind that linebacker with blitz, and it was like, holy cow. Well, the next week, he wanted to be more two-back, tight end, run the ball, play action pass. It's like, ah, it's not who we are. It's not what we got. You know, but and so I think, you know, it was that struggle of going to the new age and, and using the athletes that we had, um, but at the same time being what Miami had always been. You know, and so um, and I think he unfortunately was in that transitional period right there of you know them wanting to stay with who Miami had always been and trying to move into the new generation of football um, and using the athletes that, that Miami had. Um, you know, and so. Like I said, unfortunately, you know, he was obviously a big defensive guy and um, didn't mess with us as much offensively, except, like I said, to come in and say, hey, look, I want to be more two-back tight end. It was like, holy cow, okay, you know, let's figure out how we're going to do that. Then, you know? yeah. and so, uh, But a very good guy to work for. Um, you know, like I said, I just I think that for him in that situation, it was, a, it was a tough situation for him to be walking in at that time. Literally, the – the next question I was going to ask you was, was there pressure from former players and alumni and things like that? 
on you during your time. Like, how challenging was that? I mean, that must have been brutal to be, you know, because those guys would come, you know, sit on freaking sidelines in the middle of the games, too. You know, it was never bad for me. Um, you were sort of shielded was, from I was, that. I know it was, it was bad for me. That's why I got fired, you know, but it was not <laughs> bad for me personally, them coming and saying, what in the world are you doing? Let's do, you know, um, it was actually pretty neat at times. Like you'd have Reggie Wayne come in there and spend a half a day with us talking about different routes that they were running in Indianapolis or, you know, and things like that. So there was actually some times that, you know, that were, were really, really good with some different things and some of those former players coming in and sit, getting them on the board, talking to them, you know, going through things, the Ken Dorseys and, and some of those type of guys that were, that were actually pretty good and, and, and valuable, you know, that. Now I know, you know, like I said, I'm sure that, you know, as soon as they walked out of the office, it wasn't real good for me. But, you know, when they were in there with us, it was very good. You know, it was a, it was, you could do a lot of learning and, and learn from those guys and, and get some good stuff that they were doing in the NFL or things that they'd done in college, whatever, but some, some really good information from them. But there's no doubt um, a lot of those players, um, a lot of them were great and really wanted to be involved in a good way. But then you had a few that, that were involved and, uh, you know, and, and, and skewed things the other way just a little bit. But, but by far, I would say the vast majority of those guys, they loved the University of Miami, wanted Miami to have success, and wanted us to have success. And when they would come around, the Jonathan Vilmas or any of those guys, when they would come around, they were nothing but good. And they, you could get some great information from them and just really good guys and really smart football players. And, you know, and, and so – I, I enjoyed being around those guys and getting to, know, getting to know them and being around them in those situations. But, but yes, I know for Randy there was a lot more pressure than there was for me because, you know, he had played with them. He had been around them a lot more than I had. And, you know, they had his ear a lot more than they had mine. Now, there's a name from Miami that I remember because I grew up a Florida State fan. I just did even though I'm from South Carolina, I just did. so, And I was very in tune in Miami recruiting and stuff. And there was always this name. And Miami sort of went down at the same time Florida State kind of did. Like, they sort of mirrored each other. And there's a guy named Kyle Wright, a quarterback that came in. That I remember he was supposed to be the savior of Miami. At the same time, we had a couple guys, Drew Rutherford and Xavier Lee, coming in from Florida State. Like, they were supposed to be the saviors to bring both programs back up. And it didn't work out on either side. It didn't work out for Florida State for me, unfortunately. Um, but it didn't really work out for Kyle Wright either. I know you coached him a little bit. Like, what was the reason for that? Because he was, I mean, one of the top, if not the top quarterback in the country. I mean, had all this hype coming into Miami. as sort of seemed to me from the outside as like the savior. And it didn't work out. Why is that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Kyle's senior year was my first year there. Okay. Um, so I had him for one year. And I think there was already a lot of scars. Um, a lot of already a lot of water under the bridge. Um, you know, I think part of it is, you know, a California guy coming to Miami is it's a, you know, you didn't come out early. You didn't do that. So, so freshman year, you know, in my opinion, it's a wash. I mean, you might as well forget about the freshman year, just trying to get you adjust, adjusted to the culture and the environment, um, the time change, all those kind of things. So, you know, so probably his freshman year was kind of a wash. Then all of a sudden they started going through some turmoil. Um, and quite honestly, um, the players weren't near as good as what everybody thought. You know, I mean, once that class of about 2002 left, it started going downhill pretty quick um, with the, the talent level. Um, and, and they, I don't know that, I don't know that how they were recruiting. I, I, I wasn't down there at the time, but I know when I walked in, the talent level was not overly good, you know, especially a lot of the skill positions, you know, that you didn't have a lot of those skill guys that they'd had in the past. And, and unfortunately, you know, for Kyle, I think he had to deal with that. And then, you know, you think back in the day with, with Miami and a lot of those quarterbacks, they got a lot of credit. Uh, but they had some of the best running backs that you could have. They had some of the best wide receivers, offensive linemen. But more importantly, their defense was unreal. And so they might – they'll be up 21 to nothing, and they haven't even scored an offensive touchdown yet. The defense <laughs> scored three touchdowns. And, they're, you know, it looks like the offense is doing great, hadn't done nothing. Then you go out and you end up winning 49 to seven, and all you did was score, you know, four touchdowns, and the defense had scored the first three to put the game out of, out of reach. And so um, Kyle didn't quite have that when he came in. He didn't, unfortunately for him, he didn't quite have the dominant defense that they had had, the, the skill guys around him that weren't quite the same caliber as, as many of them, I should say. Um, and so I think, you know, um, as a quarterback, you always get too much blame and too much credit. 
Um, and so I think that he sort of probably fell into that because there was times I remember, you know, the Texas A&M game, a Thursday night game, his senior year. Uh, my daughter was born the, born the next morning. That's probably why I remember it so oh, well. Wow. Um, he lit it up that Thursday night. I mean, was just on fire. We even, you know, I had several GMs and call and NFL coaches and scouts call me after that, saying, "What's the deal, man? That guy, you know, this dude." I told him, I said, "He, you know, if, if he plays like that, he's unreal." Um, but just there was a little bit of inconsistency, you know, from that, you know, of, of, of accuracy and feeling the rush and some of those kind of things. And, you know, a lot of it's not his fault. A lot of it was probably, you know, my fault, the coordinators before that there were so many of us, there were so many different things and he had so many different things to learn and, you know, and, and stuff like that, that, you know, he, unfortunately for him, he takes a lot of the blame um, and probably doesn't deserve as much as what, you know, he's had to take. And I hate it for him because he, you know, in shorts and Pascal, things like that, just throwing against air, very, very talented. Big, 6'4", 225 pounds, 4'6", guy, can make every throw on the field, um, just didn't quite translate on the field during games. Coach, Miami, last game of the season, you're down by one, no time left on the clock, you have to go for two to win the game. What play were you running? Oh, we had a uh, – it's a little bit more common now, but we called it Old Brown Shoe. Um, and Jeff Stoutland, who was our offensive line coach, um, Jeff Stoutland is now at the Philadelphia Eagles offensive line coach. Really, really good. He was with us at Miami. Great offensive line coach. Um, they had ran it. He was at Michigan State before. They had ran it at Michigan State, taught it old brown shoe. We were starting to go through our package with what we were going to put in, and everybody has their two-point play for the end of the game when you got to have it. Um, and it was basically the tight end came and played tackle. Tackle moved out to play tight end. Then we motioned the tackle over to the other side. We motioned another guy over, and we had the tight end, and you know, and another guy coming back the other way, um, hoping the defense wouldn't see that he was an eligible receiver, all that kind of stuff. And so, so it was sort of that that trick play type of thing um, that you see a little bit more of now. Didn't see quite as much of it then. Um, actually, when he drew it on the board, first time I'd really seen it. Um, and but we called it old brown shoe, um, so that everybody would know what it was, and that's just the, that's what it was going to be. And it's just it, it, our whole thing was it's, it's reliable as an old brown shoe. When you put it on, you know that shoe's gonna fit good. And, um, and so that's that's sort of why we called it that. And uh, but that that would have been the play. Now who knows? We never got to, never seen, ran it a single time. You know we repped it so many times, but never ran it. Um, we actually one year against Florida State, a two point play. We actually ran a tackle throwback to uh, Jason Fox, and he ended up scoring on it. We ended up getting beat uh, at Miami. 40 to 38 or something crazy of uh, that game. But that was one of the, you know, a tackle throwback tackle eligible to him was a play at the end. You probably remember that one. I do. Um, and it was, uh, <laughs> really it was well. an incredible game. We gave up a touchdown on third down and 18 from the 18. They stinking ran one back power for a touchdown. And if we don't give up that touchdown at the end, we would have come back and beat them because we were, you know, we, we had started moving the ball pretty well. And, um, you know, but we we never actually ran old brown shoe. We should have ran it at some point just for fun. <laughs> I just want to call it. I was going to be fired when I did. We'd have ran it for sure just for fun. <laughs> Coach, you're in Alabama now coaching high school. And it's really interesting, I think, for a lot of coaches across the country to hear what are some of the differences between – Auburn and Alabama from an insider's perspective. I know you're an Auburn fan and your son's going to Auburn and all those things, but what are the perceptions of Auburn and Alabama? Like if you have an Auburn coach come and recruit your school and an Alabama coach come and recruit your school, what do you think the differences are in those pitches? Are there they different types of guys? Um, what are the differences in them, if there are any, that are noticeable? You know, I don't know if there's any difference in coaches. I got a ton of respect for Alabama coaches, Alabama players, um, I, a ton of respect for them, ton of respect for Auburn and love for Auburn, obviously. Um, you know, so I don't know that there's really a, a, a difference in coaches and that kind of thing. The, the biggest difference in the two schools, and, and I don't say this to, to, to say good about Auburn, about Alabama, is, is, is true. The big thing is, is, is Alabama is all about Alabama football. That's, that's, it's all about Alabama football. Auburn is about Auburn. It's not about football. It's not about basketball. It's not about baseball. It's not about sports. It's about Auburn. It's about, you know, it's about Tumor's Corner. It's about Sanford Hall. It's about, you know, it's about the little things and tradition and the people and all that. And, uh, you know, in in my experience with Alabama, it's about Alabama football. You know, and I I jokingly say all the time, and I don't think it's really a joke, that probably 75% of Alabama fans have never stepped foot on Alabama's campus. Um, You know, they just, they're an Alabama fan just because Alabama 
has won some championships, and you know, and that's very debatable with how many they've won. Um, you know, <laughs> they say they won a lot. <laughs> they say they, <laughs> they won a lot. They, 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 There's they some back them, in know, the day that. <laughs> hey, if, if, if the West Ronaldo from Adiana right up the road claimed them as national championship in 1947, they, they claim, count it. You know, that's they right. count it. You know, and so. Um, so, you know, I, I like to remind Alabama fans all the time that Auburn does have more undefeated seasons than Alabama. Most <laughs> Nobody knows that because you'd think Alabama, surely they've got 18 undefeated seasons because they got 26 national championships is what they want to play. You know, but that's not quite the case. Um, you know, and so, but anyway, um, you can tell a, a little bit of. Um, you know, it's coming out. The more yeah, you it's talk. Coming out. We shouldn't have went down this road. Y'all are setting me up. Um, you know, but truthfully, I do. I mean, I got a lot of, of friends that played at Alabama. Uh, a lot of respect for those guys, uh, a lot of respect for the coaches, um, I, a lot of respect for Coach Saban and what he's done. And, you know, he's recruited our players, he's currently recruiting our players, recruited Bo, uh, my son. And so uh, a lot of respect for those guys and for what they've done, um, you know, and what they've done over the year. My dad, when he was coaching in, you know, in Alabama, when I was younger, he was a high school coach here, um, would go over and visit Coach Bryant and, you know, had a lot of respect for him and, um, you know, so I, I think that, you know, um, the two schools are very similar in the fact um, that, that they work hard, you know, just a bunch of kids that, that play hard, work hard. Alabama now has, has changed a little bit. They're a little bit more. They're a lot more of a national school, national recruiting. Not only are their um, student athletes, but their student body. Um, Auburn is still, you know, you got state of Alabama, Georgia, Florida, you know, are the predominant you know, states that are of students that are going to Auburn, you know, Alabama, there's so many, you know, I saw a stat the other day and I forget what it was, but Texas, California, all those. Now they've got so many students from those states that it's just unreal. Yeah. Uh, you know, so Alabama has strategically went out and tried to become a national school, um, not just athletics, but in a, as a school in general, where Auburn is still Auburn is still wants to be more of a, you know, a, a, a family school, a home school, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, and so, and to each his own, you know, I mean, uh, both have had great success. Um, you know, you can't, you know, Alabama 1992, they won a national championship. 1993, we turned around, went undefeated, you know. And so, I mean, you, when you really look at it, except for, you know, like this little spurt here that Alabama's had, you know, Auburn, Alabama have been, have been very equal on the field in football. Um, you look back to the last 25 years and, it's, it's, it's virtually, I think, either Auburn or Alabama one is only up by one in the wins, you know, and, and so that's what makes the rivalry so good is that it's a true rivalry, um, you know, and everybody says that, you know, Alabama's dominating all this, or Auburn beat them two years ago, Auburn's beat them several times in this little run that they've had, and Auburn's really been the only team that has consistently beat them outside of Clemson, you know, it's been Auburn and Clemson um, that have, have done it, and I think that's what makes the rivalry so much fun is that um, even when Alabama is in its highest days and are really good, Auburn's still going to be right there to be the thorn in the side and beat them. And, you know, now Auburn will beat them and they'll end up still up end up somehow winning a national championship or claiming it. Um, but, but Auburn will still beat them. So Auburn will be the best team in the state and Alabama will claim a national championship, you know? So, uh, but I think that's what makes it fun uh, is that it's, it is so competitive. Um, it's very competitive in the state in recruiting, um, you know, very competitive in the state, you know, just, um, you know, with the sports, with football, you know, and, um, you know, but like I said, I, I think that Auburn is more, is Auburn and Alabama is more about Alabama football. You know, most people associate Alabama with Alabama football is how they associate it. So, how, how great is life when you wake up as a 21 year old and you're the starting quarterback of Auburn, like uh, just walking for, down for campus. Me was, for me, it was incredible. I grew up an Auburn fan. My, both my parents graduated from Auburn. So growing up, that's all I wanted to do. You know, I, I wanted to play in Auburn and um, never even even considered, even thought of playing in the NFL until literally after my senior season and an agent approached me and I was like, well, maybe so, you know, but all I wanted to do was play at Auburn and, and quite honestly play at Auburn and beat Alabama. You know, I mean, that's about all you <laughs> wanted to do growing up, you know, and, and so for me to have that opportunity, um, unreal. And now to see my son being able to do it, you know, is you just, you can't put it into words to be there and wear my numbers, same number and have the same opportunity, you know, that I had, um, except much better than I ever thought about being, um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a lot of fun. You know, it was great then. And it's even probably even better now as a dad, um, to sit back and watch a little more nervous sitting back watching as a dad, um, but still a lot of fun. 
I hope your son gives Nick Saban nightmares, Coach. I'm going to love every second of it. I'm going to be hoping he's screaming and hollering, stop that Nick's kid. I'll just, golly, I hope he goes 4-0, 3-0, however many he starts. That'll be fun. It would be great. Um, and it's a, it's as high high cotton and high challenge to do. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But, it's, but it would be a, a – um, it would be great. It would absolutely be great. Coach, I wanted to wrap it up with asking you about your book. Uh, I know that you've, you've published a book and it's really cool because it's something that, uh, it's something close to me because it's, it's about raising your children and, um, being, the book's called David had a dad courageously raising a young man after God's own heart, because my dad's a football coach. Um, he's raised me to love the Lord and live for him. And I just was curious what is that? What do you? Uh, what? Why did you write that book? And uh, what's it all about? Well, when I was when I was in high school, I think anybody that, that hears the story of David um, sort of falls in love with him. And especially when you read that David was a God man after God's own heart, you're like, I want to know more about him. And then when you go to look at David, you're going to go straight to David and Goliath. I mean, that's just everybody wants to go to the story of David and Goliath. And so growing up, I studied the story of David and Goliath, and through high school. Um, Whenever I'd have a chance to go and speak, I would generally go and speak about David and Goliath and have a little four-part, you know, um, talk that I would do. And as time went, it expanded to a ten-part deal that I actually used for Bible studies for our players and and things like that. And um, in 2000, um, I guess nine, I got fired at my, from Miami and um, still had a year and a half left on the contract. Um, and I had two choices: I could go back into coaching, and they wouldn't pay me a dime or I could stay out of coaching and make them pay me for a year and a half for very good salary. So it was not a very hard choice for me. Um, just, to, <laughs> hey, you, you can pay me every dime, then I'll take it. And so in that time, um, I was a really good um, stay-at-home dad, um, great flag football coach, and wrote a book. <laughs> and, um, you know, and so uh, that's when I actually sat down and put all my thoughts on paper and put the stories together, put the 10 principles together, um, and all that kind of stuff, and still use it. I go through it with our team. About every three years, um, we'll go through the because I, I think I truly believe that the, the ten principles in the in you know that, that Jesse that I believe Jesse imparted to David to go and take on Goliath are ten principles that everybody needs, um, not just our kids but our players and male female doesn't matter who who they are uh, that are some incredible truths out of the Bible and from the story of David and Goliath that we can all apply to our life. Um, to give us a better opportunity to face those giants that we're going to have in life or just to face the ordinary things that we have in life. Um, but, but things that, you know, of, of, from that story that I think, once again, everybody is gravitated to that story, but some principles that I really believe that David took. And, and I, I personally believe, you know, when you look at it, the story begins with um, David being the son of Jesse and the story ends with Saul saying, hey, whose son is that young man? That's where the story begins and ends. Um, all the other stuff in between is the fight, but the story begins with Jesse and ends with Jesse. So there's something about Jesse that God's trying to tell us that we need to look at. And as as coaches, as dads, as anybody that is over a grandparent, whatever you are, anybody that's over younger, the younger generation, or that can impart those principles too, I think is very important. And like I said, I, it's principles that I live by, principles my family has lived by, and teams have lived by, and everything over the years. Um, that just was, was blessed enough to, to put it down on paper and, and write it and get it published and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, having a biblical approach to raising guys, whether they be kids or guys that you're, you're coaching for four years, I think that's, um, you know, from my perspective, that's the most important thing you could learn. So uh, I'm really glad you wrote that book, and I think it's awesome to have as a guide to be able to, to do that with. Uh, Coach, last question before we go. Chad and I always do a little segment on our show called The Coach's Cliché. And I was wondering if you had, throughout all your years, if there's one cliché that you've heard coaches say, no matter what program, because you've been at Georgia Tech, Miami, uh, Sanford, you played at Auburn, is there anything that they say? A couple of the ones we've already talked about is get somebody in there that can do it, even when there's nobody that can do it. We've talked about <laughs> we, we've talked about if you don't want to be here, leave. Chad, what's the other one we talked about? I don't want to be here. Leave. There's oh, there's one more. If you don't want to be here, leave. Get oh, somebody in here that can do it. We and talked about don't worry about looking pretty with wristbands and all that stuff. Yeah, don't look pretty. You want to look pretty. Is there anything you've heard from all the programs you've been at that's a cliche you just that stuck with you throughout the years? 
you know, probably the, the biggest one is what you've already said. You know, if you don't want to be here, leave. Because uh, most of the time when you're saying that, you don't really want them to leave. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you're hoping they don't leave, but you're saying it anyway. Uh, you, know, you don't say I that to Calvin know. Johnson, do you? No. Calvin no, you Johnson doesn't Calvin. get that. You know, not at all. Uh, not at all. Uh, you know, but uh, so, you know, and, and we we are, as, as high school coaches, we're full of cliches and we say things that, and, and we talk, one of the things we talked this week with our team is about forgiveness, you know, and how many times us as coaches have to go to them and ask for forgiveness because we say dumb things out there that we really don't mean. And then once we stop and think about it, we're like, how dumb was that? So we have to go back to the kid, apologize. I really don't think that you're awful. I really do think that you're a good player. You know, <laughs> just that one step wasn't good. So we're going to call a kid awful because of one step, you know, and then we just sometimes as coaches, um, the competitive nature comes out in us a little bit too much. Uh, and, and the kids, I know sometimes they look at us like we have four heads, like, what are you talking about? You know, and so you have to go back and apologize, put your arm around them and love them. But, uh, but I think as coaches, um, we say a lot of dumb things. Uh, I'm, glad, I'm, I'm glad people don't go out and, and record some of the things we say. Um, you know, it, it might not be profanity or any of that, but it's just dumb. It's just, I mean, you're just <laughs> an idiot. I mean, you know, you want to put the, here's your sign, you know, where you sign that you're an idiot, you know, for saying it. And then, like I said, after a few minutes, you think back and you're like, that didn't make any sense right there, you know. And so, uh, but yeah, we're, coaches are, I don't know that we're always claimed to be the smartest guys in the world, but we work really hard, you know. And so uh, we have a lot of good cliches. We do. Yes, sir. We say a lot of dumb stuff. Me and Chad try to talk about one every episode, but coach, it's been a, it's been fun having you on, hearing some of your stories and how you've come through your career and uh, gotten to the level you're at now and processed some of the hard times in the beginning, but we greatly appreciate it. It's been a blessing. It's been an honor to have you on. Thank y'all. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I was extremely close to telling coach Nix that nothing would have made you happier as a high schooler than to see him lose his job like in the first quarter of his first game because of how much you hate Miami as a Florida State fan. Oh, yeah, literally. Like that would have been like a dream of mine, like offensive coordinator, like wake up to ESPN, offensive coordinator fired at halftime of his first game. Coach Patrick Nix. Like I've been like, yes, even I mean, he's a great guy. I love talking to him. Um, He really is. He's had a ton of success. But yeah, at that time in my life, I mean, do you remember in eighth grade me sitting behind you and like, we got in a lot of trouble because I was sitting behind you during like a worksheet. We were supposed to be quiet and Florida state made the orange bowl that year when we were in eighth grade, even though Clemson beat them. And I just like kept like just saying orange bowl, orange bowl. And you ended up freaking out and we got in trouble. That does not surprise me at all. Yeah. You hopped on that Florida state bandwagon. What first national championship when you were alive or was it? Well, 93 was the first one. I didn't know that anything. The first national championship when I was alive, (laughs) Really, and knew what was happening was in 99 with Chris Winkie beat Michael Vick. I really don't think he would have cared, though, if you would have said something like. No, he, wouldn't have. No, he, he wouldn't have gotten mad. But no, you def- I mean, he gets it. He's got yeah. a perspective on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you definitely were pulling for that. It wasn't anything personal, but uh, <laughs> I wanted to tell him. I just, I liked him too much. You I should didn't have. Want to, I didn't should want have. To situation. Should have made for some good content. He wouldn't have known what to say. It could have been a little awkward. Also, yeah, like you would have loved for Kyle Wright to break both of his legs. <laughs> you, you would have. Not, not that. Like in a, in a world where it wouldn't have been painful and he could have been healed and that thing. But she would have loved to have heard Kyle Wright broke his legs first day on campus, like tripped over a fountain. I remember. Both, that, both femurs gone. <laughs> that first game that he played against Florida State on Labor Day night. It was like the first game of the season. Florida State. With their new quarterbacks, they had two of them that were, like, top five quarterbacks. Kyle Wright was, like, the number one quarterback for California. And, like, ESPN, like, showed him, like, during, like, the pregame show, like, warming up. And he – and this is, like, before this stuff was popular. Um, he had, like, a sleeve up one arm. He had a visor. Like, this is before quarterbacks ever wore visors. I mean, it's, like, 2005 or something, maybe. Like, nobody had – or maybe even 04. Like, nobody did. He had a visor. I was just like, he looks like such a freaking pretty, like, golly. I just, from the first time I ever saw him, even after hearing about him, I just, I hated the guy. God. What does a 64-year-old high school football coach from South Georgia think about Kyle Wright wearing a visor and a sleeve? Oh, he hated it. Oh, in 2007. <laughs> in 04, when he came out there doing that stuff, he's like, oh, I, that, that kid can't play. And he, he, didn't sound play. Like, he didn't sound like that, though. 
That boy can't play. <laughs> That's true. What's, what's he wearing? Got a visor on. They probably think the sleeve is made of cotton, too. They think it's like made of like a fabric that it's not at all. They have no idea even what the fabric is. But, yeah, no, you would have loved to have had And I, the thing is, I ended up like wearing that stuff when I was in high school. Yeah, but like at the time, like when I saw that camera pan to him and he was warming up, like he was just freaking the greatest thing on planet Earth. Golly, I freaking destroy him. Just kind of want to punch you in the face right now. Just, that is. That's just, kinda, <laughs> I don't know anything about you, but I would just I just want to punch you in the face. I was in seventh grade <laughs> and he just sat like he is one of those guys or to me. He was one of those guys like he is so punchable. Like I, I just want bad things to happen to him because he thinks that like. He is entitled to good things happening to him, even though I don't know him at all. Yeah. And he's like an 18-year-old that has like accomplished a ton athletically, and I'm like a little seventh grader who doesn't know anything about anything. <laughs> yeah. So, Chad, we another coach's cliche for this week. It's becoming one of my favorite segments. Uh, it's the only segment we've done, but it is an awesome segment. I love it. The, I, mean, I know you've said this. Coach cliche. If we don't want to work today, then we'll run the whole practice. I ain't got nowhere to be. So <laughs> if we don't want to work In today. In that exact accent. Yeah. We're going to run the whole practice. Uh, California guys, I wonder how y'all talk when y'all get mad. Is it like, like, dudes, we got to do this. Like, I don't know how they sound. But all I know is Southern culture football, and that's how they sound. So if you don't want to work today, we'll run the whole practice. Chad, when's the last time you oh, said Oh, we need to do a segment where, like, you go through the cliches in each different state's accent because that California one, that was something special. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I definitely have said it, and I've done it. I have done it. You I've have not it. made your team run the whole practice. No, no, not run the whole practice. What I did is, like, I, I did, like, I said that, and we ran for a while – I mean, we did like a full conditioning thing. Like we stopped practice, did a full conditioning thing, and then started practice over. So I have done that, and that, you know, added another freaking 40 minutes to practice. But, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, – has any of your head coaches said that? I think every head coach says that. Yeah, that's probably accurate. What do you think when he says that? You're just like – you think like the kids, don't you? Like no, he's I mean, never going to do that. Honestly – Which is true. Okay, so I want my team to practice hard. I, I'm a coach, so yeah. I want them to practice hard. But it would be amazing to be the actual only team that ever just said, we are going to run the entire practice instead of practicing and actually doing it the length of what practice would have been. Because I think the, the key to that cliche is we're going to run the rest of practice if y'all don't get right. Because usually it's what you did. You run for a couple of minutes, then you practice again. No, I want to see a team, the first 15 minutes of practice that didn't do it right, and then the coach runs the players for the next two hours. They probably all, like, die, but, I mean, you're or get dehydrated. Like, everybody would be, if you did that. Real, real conditioning for two hours is, <laughs> that's pretty. <laughs> We're running gassers for the next hour 45. Go ahead and get some water, fellas. That's pretty on it. I will say, my JV baseball coach, who is now, I'll, I'll call him out, I don't care, and he don't care. The head coach of Sherall High School right now, Andy Poole, was my JV baseball coach. He did actually make us run an entire practice. Like, <laughs> that does not surprise me at all. It, the entire time, like, all I can remember thing was how hungry I was. And, like, every lap, it was poles, actually. We literally just ran poles, like, just for an hour and a half. And, like, every time I got this, like, I'm so hungry. He's got to call it. And every time I thought that he would have sympathy for us, it's like, he's not actually going to make us run for an hour 45. Like, he's going to have sympathy, and, like, and no, he didn't. We ran for an hour 45. Like, we ran exactly that amount. So, it's he's of, the only one that I've actually heard that has done it. I feel like those punishments don't actually suck as bad, though, as, like, a short punishment that's really bad. Because some things can be so bad that you're just like, this is my reality for the next hour and a half, and I'm just going right. to embrace it. Whereas, if you have 10 minutes of just going hard punishment, it's like, oh, crap, I got to, like, practice after this, too. Uh right. Was that one of those situations where it was so bad it was just like, all right, well, this is life now? Yeah, I mean, you're doing it for an hour 45. Obviously, you're not going to sprint for an hour 45. <laughs> so, you know, it does turn into like a very, very slow, like slogging jog. That in a, I mean, it's mentally tough, but it's probably not as physically tough as like having to get out there and run like legit sprints for 30 minutes, like a regular condition, and then turn around and do practice. 
Chad, right. that's what's terrible. I want you to tell everybody about when you were at New Hampshire and you won the like top cat reward during Matt drills because people oh, thought you were no. going hard. So this is guys, Matt drills. This is when Chad was in college and you know how everybody's like finish Chad learned from a friend of ours in high school who would always make his face look like he was straining and run like exaggeratively like hard, but he wasn't actually going full speed. Chad learned how to fake going hard. Chad, tell him that story. This is terrible. This is going to make me sound like the worst player <laughs> the, ever. God. Go ahead. All right, so Matt Drill's like, you get awards, and like we were New Hampshire Wildcats. So, man, I don't even remember. It's been a long time now. You get like a Top Cat Award. There was like two levels, but it was, I think one was just like the Wildcat Award, and then it was Top Cat Award. I go to like five people per Matt Drill. I mean, there's 120 people doing a Matt Drill. Top five get it. And it's all based off of, off of the coach's perception of effort. So it's nothing. There is no competition of it. Like you're going through these mat drills, which are terrible. I mean, very much like, subjective. Yeah. It, you can't fake going hard in a mat drill. So it's not like I was just like walking around or anything. I mean, it was awful. I threw up afterwards, all that good stuff. But to get to separate myself from just middle of the pack, like average or whatever, to actually get the top cat is I learned, and same like you said from somebody in high school, that if I contorted my face, and made this noise ah, 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 ah. every time I made like a cut or, you know, touch the line ah, 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 and contorted my face that the coaches would think like I was like killing it. Like I was busted it more than anybody out there, like fifth year seniors who were like freaking grown men out there getting after it. Like they thought I was going as hard as them because I would just like just scrunch my face up and, and make that noise. And I got a top cat award out out of it even though i was one of the had some of the least stamina and conditioning on the entire team i wiggle my way into a top cat award by contorting my face and now i sound like the most uncoachable player in the history of the well, world no you were going hard but you weren't going as hard as it seemed you were going because right. that noise if i see a kid making that noise yeah he is face, getting after it there's no way as a coach i think is this kid faking a face and making a noise to make me think he's going hard? Like that is the most brilliant scheme ever. So now I get it. I mean, I actually used that move a couple times and it wasn't that I wasn't going hard. I just learned from Seriously. Dylan. I learned yeah. from Dylan that if you make your face look like that, people are going to think you're going hard. Now the key is if you're running slow and doing that, people are just going to think you suck because like, well, wow, the, I was about to say, that's the difference in, in our friend in high school who sort of told us that is like, he had to do that just to make people think he was middle of the pack. <laughs> Whereas yeah. for me, it was going from middle of the pack to the top. So a little different. So, yeah, we got off the topic there, but if we're going to be here, we're going to be here all night. If we don't practice hard, I'd be interested to hear if any of you guys have actually done that before. Maybe when you were playing, maybe if you're coaching, if you have hit us up on Twitter at coaches drive, uh, guys, we got an email coach, the coaches drive at gmail.com. Uh, like us on Facebook. We still uh, want to hear from you. Got a couple of messages on Twitter, a couple things we're looking to talk about in some future episodes. And, um, we're going to, at some point, we're going to tweet out and find the top coach cliche in the nation. I want to find out across the nation what was the best coach cliche or what is the most popular one. So uh, appreciate you guys listening. We, we have a lot of fun doing this, and hopefully you learn as much as we do. And uh, we try to be as real as we can for you guys. Uh, but at the end of the day, we realize, like Chad said, we need to learn a ton to get better. We've got so much that we can learn, and uh, we love doing this because we get to learn, and hopefully at the same time you are. So Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Later.